Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. The lesson from the book of James this morning, I think, drives home a really important dimension of our encounter with God and uh, our encounter with God in the Bible and with God through the Bible. And so I'm going to work with kind of two parallel ideas here that are examples, and uh, uh, one with the Word of God and one with the theme that is presented in the book of James, and then I'm going to add or end with two Latin words, which I used very innocently, but I learned yesterday it can't be used innocently anymore, so be careful when we get there. We could approach our Bible studies, our look into the Bible, as merely the conveying of information. It tells us about stuff. And in that case, our Bible study is all about, about. What's it about? And that's an important part of a Bible study. Obviously, the Bible tells us things. It's part of its function, both in our private lives and for congregations, to tell us about things. But that's limited. And most Christians, I think, finally discover that there's a much richer experience involved uh, in, in reading the Scriptures, and that's uh, we approach not just to find out more information about a story, but actually want to become characters in the story. And we're not talking about a, um, an exercise of the imagination there. Something's happening to us as we read. We want the Bible to be part of a living encounter with God. We want to allow the Bible as the Word of God to be a living document to draw us in and draw us near to God and to experience a kind of transformation. And when I say transformation like that, I'm not uh, hoping to be vague. I'm not talking about uh, a moral nag, you know, get better. And I'm certainly not talking about a psychotherapeutic issue of personal development when I talk about transformation. I think that the transformation we talk about has a, a starting point in birth again, rebirth in Christ, and then a change. It's a starting place. And then an ongoing shaping of our character as believers where we become whole. Whole beings where we were broken, soothed where we were ruffled and injured and hurt and equipped, equipped for good works that actually become our joy to perform our tasks in life. In short, you might say godliness is the goal or the, the, the destination, and uh, you might use the old the term sanctification there for the kind of transformation I'm talking about, but sanctification's been baptized and given a halo and all kinds of stuff, so it, it gets, loses its power in some ways. Now, I'm not suggesting when you look at the Bible and have that experience reading the Bible that it happens apart from some kind of rigorous, objective, and disciplined study of the Scriptures, studying them in their context, looking for consistent and reasonable and objectively measured uh, interpretations. Say, so be very wary of a lot of what passes as Bible application, where people seem to find secret and hidden messages in the Scriptures. They're suspiciously personal, sometimes drawn out of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, spoken to kings and to nations, and somehow or other find personal applications down the road, uh, be careful with that. I think the Bible is regularly abused when Christians pull uh, personal application out of, uh, by using illustrations from the Scriptures, ignoring context, assuming that the casual reader knows everything just intuitively. I'm not suggesting you be a part of that when you look into the Scriptures and look for this transformation. Study. Come to a Bible college. 
I am suggesting that when you read the Bible as a believer, that the Holy Spirit, if your heart is open, if your mind is open, your soul is willing, the Holy Spirit is looking over your shoulder, and more than reading in the conventional sense is happening. Uh, Reading the Bible, you end up in a special place where God is speaking clearly in different contexts, some of them thousands of years of old, but even though speaking there, somehow or other speaking to you, and that kind of reading can change you. Now, what's that got to do with the book of James and what we're talking about today? I think the book of James would support this point and run parallel to it. The Word of God, when we read it, like I'm describing, it changes us. Um, And if it doesn't, then something is wrong with our reading. Something's wrong with the use of the Scriptures. We've gotten cloudy. We've blocked it somehow. Or we're restricting the power it could have in our lives, what it can do for us. And here's where I connect it to the passage we'll be reading in James. Um, Faith, James talks about, if it is real, and I say similar to what happens when we look into the Word of God in the Scriptures, is doing something to us. It's changing us. And in this case, it's, uh, in faith is not one of its, uh, doesn't carry latent powers or occult powers, but faith opens up the inner windows and doors of our being, of our consciousness, uh, to uh, God's power through the Holy Spirit, so that true faith necessarily changes us. Uh, true faith has to do that. And so just like the scriptures, I think when we read them that way I've described, they, don't, they won't leave us alone. They'll work on us. They'll work in us and open us up to God's presence. Well, faith will do the same thing for us. It won't leave us alone. It will change and transform us. So that's the introduction for James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, some passage I'm pretty sure you'll all be familiar with. Let me read it. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, Was Rahab, the prostitute, not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I've never found that passage uncomfortable or threatening or oppressive. The idea that faith would be more than an intellectual assertion or agreement or assent to propositions about God 
is not what I wanted when I gave my life to Christ, and it's still not what I want. I wanted a faith that would do something to me, something beyond me, something beyond my own powers to achieve. And that desire extended well past my first years, of Christ, first years as a Christian, trying to think, what is this faith that will change me? For instance, a very important part of me, uh, this to me was when I wandered into this faith shaped by Anabaptism and the Mennonites. You know, that's not my background and uh, never will be. Don't want it to be. Theologically, though, I identified with something that was happening there, the notion of a transformed life that produced works that were consistent with the New Testament and its pictures. I'd been pretty well trained in the theological traditions I'd started out as when I became a Christian, theologically as a young Christian, but I longed for a different approach, and that's what I was seeking, something about discipleship that was not just learning about endlessly, there's some treasures in that. I mean, there's some, some marvel in that, but not just learning about, but I wanted to learn to be. And I wanted it to be more than just learning. I wanted transformation. I wanted something to uh, reach in and, and produce this in me. And so, Menno Simons, that crusty old figure from 500 years ago, who I didn't know much about at the time, spoke to me. And a quotation of his, when it's not savagely edited, which it often is, disemboweled, really, uh, uh, still speaks for me. Let me quote Menno. Behold, most beloved reader, thus true faith or true knowledge begets love, and love begets obedience to the commandments of God. Therefore, Christ Jesus says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. And then a few paragraphs later, a quotation that, as I said, is often just gutted in, in, in editing, says this. True evangelical faith is of such a nature that it cannot lay dormant. It manifests itself in all righteousness and works of love. It dies unto the flesh and blood, destroys all forbidden lusts and desires, cordially seeks and serves and fears God, clothes the naked, feeds the hungry, consoles the afflicted, shelters the miserable, aids and consoles all the oppressed, returns good for evil, serves those that injure it, prays for those that persecute it, teaches, admonishes, and reproves with the word of the Lord, seeks that which is lost, binds up that which is wounded, heals that which is diseased, and saves that which is sound. The persecution, suffering, and anxiety which befalls it for the sake of the truth of the Lord is to it a glorious joy and consolation." As I said, that quotation from Menno is often hijacked and put up in little posters and things like that, uh, uh, invariably edited who, those, by those who attempt to reduce the gospel to kind of a social agenda of, of kind of a do-gooder good, do good works that, that might come from it. But that's not what resonated with me when I read the quotation or consider it now. I think Menno got it right, importantly right. It's a little bit 16th century. You probably noticed that reading it. It's a little optimistic, to say the least. It's inspiring, but as I'm inspired, I'm also deflated. And I suggest that if you could hear quotations like that and think that you will ever achieve an unblemished record in such matters, that you, you may have serious mental and spiritual problems. But and I would suggest anybody out looking for a church where they're looking for this unblemished practice that matches this is on a fool's quest. 
the church is full of inconsistencies and has a history of multiple failures. Uh, such a church doesn't exist and won't be created to fulfill that picture, to match it perfectly. Yet I believe Menno got it right. He knew the direction that faith would take you, the journey that we begin in faith, imperfectly, inconsistently, with growing pains, doing stupid stuff, embarrassing failure. True faith ultimately produces good works. I might not do it well, but I know where this road leads. I know a few steps on the path, and I wanted to be on it, and I still want to be on it. And I think that's the teleology If you're studying your theology, that's the teleology of life in Christ. That's where we're going. That's where we're being taken. Let's back up and deal with another crusty 16th century guy. You may have heard of him, Martin Luther. Uh, You may have heard, I don't know if this has come up in any of your classes yet, that Martin Luther had some real problems with the book of James. It bothered him. Uh, Luther, as you might have heard by now, had solved a deep conflict he felt in his life and in faith with regard to works and human righteousness and God's judgment. He was plagued by the question, why shouldn't God send me to hell? This, this drove him to the brink of insanity. He was a tortured soul. But then in the Turm Erlebnis, the Tower Experience, he receives a kind of enlightenment, an epiphany. Uh, A new thought seizes him. The just shall live by faith. And that unlocks this, this puzzle. Salvation by grace alone, not by works of the law. And the scales fall from his eyes that, that had been blinding him of Catholic piety and theology that had oppressed him. And the Luther, who did so much good at first, is, is launches, really, the Reformation. A remarkable, uh, a remarkable achievement. But then he had to deal with the book of James. What about all this... Uh, uh, Grace alone by faith, not by works of the law, lest anyone should boast. What about James 2.20? Oh, that miserable verse. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Or James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What was the newly awakened brother Martin going to do with all that anyway? Luther never explained well, at least to me, I'm not a great Lutheran scholar, but as how faith could happen, how I could put faith in anything without considering this as an act of will that would yet become another work, another kind of work I would have to achieve or be sent to hell. Hence is launched all sorts of exciting theological discussion that I hope you've already started to engage on campus here, driving soteriology, you know what I'm talking about, the doctrines of salvation from Calvin to Luther to Arminius, right down here into the very rooms of RBC, the discussion is still alive. The Reformed asked, how can a corpse dead in sin put faith in anything? They're incapable of an act of will. The Arminian responds, and then what's the point of a choice that is pre-programmed? It's not a choice at all. Maybe faith is a latent or a not fully corrupted human power. These are, these are big issues. And I'm not going to solve them for you this morning. I have my opinion. Just for the record, I'm an Arminian to the bone. Another chapel series, another time. Talk to Matt Showalter. Get it programmed. In his preface to the New Testament in 1522, Luther wrote that the book of James was an epistle of straw. 
said, it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. That's how he was dealing with his problem with the book of James. But we don't often hear the rest of the story, actually, which is he dropped those words from all his subsequent prefaces to the, the Bible as was published in his time. And in fact, even in those early days, he couldn't totally escape the voice of James. And he said uh, of the book, I praise it, I hold it a good book, because it sets up no doctrine of men, but vigorously promulgates God's law. Even Luther couldn't totally suppress the argument that James presented. For some reason, for which I thank God, I have escaped the tension that Luther felt. Um, One of them is easy. I was not raised a medieval Roman Catholic. (laughs) Far from it. I was not nurtured in a church at all, let alone one that taught salvation by works on any level. I was not shaped ever in an early Christian environment that could be seen as legalistic, probably, if anything, leaning a little bit the other way. And having no such excuses, though, I'll have to tell you, things like legalism and works righteousness, if you want to call it that, these are pathologies of any spiritual mind, and you can easily fall into them, whether you've been uh, indoctrinated into them or brainwashed into them. Your own fetid little imagination will produce these things in you. And I've fallen into those pits, and I've crawled out of a few of them in my life, too, hopefully never to fall again. But back to this idea that a faith that would be mere propositions about salvation, I would not have found healing, saving, and even as a teenager, not of much interest. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. I didn't know demons from anything back then, but uh, you know, the, the, the verse could speak to me. I knew I had to live in a world that had beaten me up in my own context, and I sure hoped that this new faith that I was about to put in Christ wouldn't just sit there as a belief, but would transform me, change me, and that it would start this by healing and giving me purpose and giving me peace. I had little idea of the extent of that transformation at the time when I, when I gave my life to Christ, or what could happen, or the struggle that some of that transformation can produce in a soul as we try to get there and be shaped. But I did sense the first few feet on that path that I was talking about that gets a bigger picture with Menno Simon's quotation. I kind of knew where it was going, where it was leading, and I sensed for a long time and would have even had the insight then to think that Um, this mysterious mystical beginning, it isn't founded in human energy. That would only take you so far. I I knew there was nothing left in me at that point. I was pretty beat up when I became a Christian uh, that that would would be able to launch any kind of serious change. The idea, if I had been presented, as some people often are in some of the Mennonite church, a group of do-gooders doing good in the world in a, a loving fellowship, waving the banner of Jesus' name, that that wouldn't have been salvation at all. As a matter of fact, uh, undeveloped as I was, I think that so-called gospel would produce limited and uh, very mixed results and probably, like most human endeavors in that regard, spin off a few monsters on the way. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be capable of, of living up to it unless something, some engine was there to make it different. It wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be true. It wouldn't be salvation. Well, that's a rant. Got a couple more for you before you're done here. And then we have to finish in Latin. So, you know, stand by. There's more. 
I think it would be a grave misinterpretation in James here to think that this passage of James is a, a, a moral, uh, moralistic nag or prod to read this in James and say, saying, look, you foolish person, you slimy hypocrite, buckle down, try harder, get in gear, you slouches, you're not living up to it, try harder, try harder, try harder, be consistent. Is that how we read James? I think that's what Luther thought he saw in James, but I don't, I don't know. James isn't cracking the whip here and demanding that you act more consistently built out of your own human energy. I think what he's telling us is that faith produces consistency in us. So that just like the Word of God changes us, faith changes us. Faith does its own work in us. And I stress again that it isn't a latent power of, of humans in faith in standalone mode, but faith involves an engagement with God that invariably transforms us. We put in faith, our faith in God, and in that faith, God meets us, and things happen. Things change in us because of who we've put our faith in. Do you, you remember that great passage in Mark? It's one interesting to compl- uh, contemplate sometimes. It comes from Mark 6, 5, where he can't he couldn't do many miracles. And of course, you have to always be very judicious if you say God couldn't do something, <laughs> but why not? And he could not do any miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. It, 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 it separates us. It, it holds us back from God when faith isn't there. Faith has dimensions the most important ones, beyond the things of this earth, beyond human activity and energy. The mere human process of putting faith in something is simply an entry point, saved by grace through faith. That helps me answer Luther's proposition. Isn't faith the door that opens, that invites God in? In the big questions of soteriology again, one could ask all kinds of questions about the sequence, the capacity, the other thorny issues that come up with how that faith arrives, but all of that misses the main point as far as I'm concerned, which is that faith is the primary, you say, nexus, entry point, conduit by which God reaches into your life. And if God is working in you, then the so-called faith that doesn't seem to lead to God's work coming out of you to godliness, to transformation, to sanctification, to consistency, well then perhaps that's no faith at all or some kind of limited third or fourth cousin or something of, of faith. It's, it, it may be where you are, but it's not where you're going. Well, how do you know that faith's in you? Uh, that, that's always the big question for me because I've said that the Menno was far too optimistic or in 16th century in the picture he gave and the, the, blem- the church record of blemishes and failure and my own at this point is pretty enormous. Um, just, just for the record, I'm way older than just about everybody here. Just about everybody. And uh, uh, um, as you get older, you, like the record just keeps going. You know, you feel like you're in the old cop show, like you've got a long record uh, uh, of, of failure. <laughs> Cringe moments. I think, good Lord, how did I say that to somebody? How did I do that? How did I fail to do that? Oh, well, we'll leave that for you to discover on your own in about, oh, 45 years. May God bless you with such a life. How do you know faith is happening? even though you have failed so miserably. 
Well, let me say, it's never your job to judge the struggling work of faith in someone else's life. Um, Believe me, they're struggling just like you are. Let me say that we do fail miserably at times, and we have to ask, well, if this is God working in us, why does it seem so restricted and so limited? Well, I think we can. If we go into the guts of the, the ideas of soteriology again, we can rest in the idea of justification, another word I hope you're getting familiar with, of a settlement in God's work in forgiving us and suspending the guilt of sin in our lives. But justification's great, but salvation must be more than a shuffling of papers up in the heavens somewhere other that somehow uh, just throws yours in the wastebasket and says not guilty. I mean, something else happens. What about our nature that has been so corrupted by sins? If justification were the end of the matter in that sense, well, there'd be no discussion really. Why doesn't God just beam us up into heaven right now? We've already arrived. And I think with justification, you can clearly say we have arrived. But that's not the whole story. We're saved, but it's not foolish to use that formulation that says we're saved and we're being saved in another sense. Justification has to be seen as a beginning or a state that we're held in while something else happens. Um, not the end of the life that's spent in eternity worshiping in the beauty of holiness. The infection of sin in the human beings, and when you bunch us up in a church, it's no different, is far deeper than we usually acknowledge it to be. And because that infection is so deep and pervasive, it's, it's only improved upon slowly in a life as, as faith opens our hearts to God and God changes us. Menno was right. Menno has to be patient, though. Now, it's usually important to remind Christians that when when the early church is speaking of the Scriptures, the New Testament was still in formation, and that the scriptural examples feeding the believers were often drawn from the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament wasn't complete, and it's hard to say really what they were able to, to draw from there. The examples that James uses for faith in that passage are rooted deep in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. In Abraham, once again, remind yourself, pre-law, pre-Sinai, patriarchal. Verse 21, was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Or Rahab, post-law, but not by much, maybe by months. And of course, I don't think you know, handy copies of the law were being circulated into a, a pagan city like Jericho from Sinai. So she was totally outside that loop, you might say, and uh, wouldn't have known the law at all. Was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Interesting cases to me, because in some ways you realize if you look at them objectively, the childhood Sunday school picture of them fails miserably. The cartoons don't match. Both of them lived very messy lives. There's much you wouldn't want to emulate or have to go through in both lives. But they had one thing that makes them see, uh, well, one thing in this case, that makes them part of the eternal record of Scripture that, that inspires us, and that is they had faith, and we know they had faith because of what they did. Well, faith without works 
is dead, just like the spirit without the body is dead. Faith does things in us, not because it's faith, but because faith is that door which opens that allows the work of God to proceed in our lives. And so there's no problem with those passages. Luther and James could get along. I hope they're having a cup of coffee together up in heaven now. Now some Latin. I use these terms very innocently and uh, now I understand that uh, the, the Reformed theologians have worked their magic on it and have developed them into advanced theological discussions, which I'm a little bit skeptical of anyway. But, uh, so I use them innocently. Uh, I'm afraid as you get older, you will not be able to use them as innocently as I can when I, as I learn them. Two Latin words that illustrate my point. Many Christians might have the level of faith that when sometimes was called in Latin a census. It was they agreed. They agreed to truths about things. Yeah, God's there. It's a belief about God. James reminds us, that's good. Demons can have that as well. It's a start, perhaps. Actually, it might be a very necessary start to believe about something in order to go to the, you might say, the next phase. But using the Latin again, you want to require or acquire fiducia. There's a great word, fiducia. And uh, fiducia is that idea of faith in, not faith about, faith in. Faith, not just belief about, but trust. It's that kind of faith, fiducia that opens the door so that God works in our lives and produces in us good works that show we have faith. It can't do otherwise. Just like the Word of God doesn't leave us alone, faith will not leave us alone. It's what James told us. Free pastoral advice. Don't leave RBC unless you get a hold of that kind of faith. Fiducia. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.